In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the second Sunday of Christmas. We don't always get two Sundays in the Christmas season. This year we're blessed to. It's also the last day of Christmas. It's the twelfth day. Uh, So we are at the end of this feast. Tomorrow is the Feast of the Epiphany. And uh, we will be entering into the Epiphany season. We celebrate Christmas remembering Christ's first coming in order to prepare for his second coming. We celebrate his first coming in order to prepare for his second coming. The wise men were prepared for Christ's first coming. They had done everything that they were supposed to do in order to be ready when the star appeared. They got ready through tradition and through scripture. How did they know it? They're Persians. They're Gentiles. How did they know what the scriptures say? God used his lifting off of his hand from the nation of Israel, from Judah, and uh, their subsequent exile into Babylon for his good. You'll remember that Daniel and his friends and many of the nobles of Judah and the Babylonian exile go to Babylon and that is quickly taken over by the Chaldeans. And soon after that, the Persians rise. And in the Persian Empire, finally, they're recognized and allowed to return to rebuild the temple. And during that 70 years, Daniel rises to a high rank, as do many others in the courts of the Chaldeans. And they're able to uh, translate the scriptures, and they're able to teach the ways of the Jews. They're able to teach about the coming of the Messiah and these warning prophecies. And you could say that Daniel was a magi. He was one of these rulers. He was one of these wise princes of the Chaldeans. This is who the wise men are, these magi. They are a kind of uh, noble ruling academic. These are men who have power and authority, who have people under them to administer, and they're also uh, they're, they're academics, they're scholars. And they have been studying for generations the scriptures, and so they are ready when the star appears. They respond when the star appears and they go uh, to the east and they follow the star and they come uh, to Jerusalem, to Judea, in order to worship God. Now you'll read that Herod and Jerusalem were terrified when they show up. And if you're used to just thinking about the wise men as these three dudes on camels on your Christmas cards, you think, what's so scary about that? Right? Just three lonely travelers. Well, if you know anything about the ancient world, you know that if anybody of any kind of property or status travels, they never go by themselves. To do anything, you have to have a whole retinue of servants, right? A whole household full of servants. So that's the first place. These guys never would have traveled without a great group of servants. The second thing to know is that they are uh, of a status. They have uh, power and authority. And so anyone with power and authority is going to travel with uh, a retinue of bodyguards, if not a cadre of soldiers with them. So now you get the picture of multiple great men of the Persians traveling with soldiers, with an army, with a retinue, with a household of servants, and now you get this picture of hundreds if not thousands of people traveling from Persia and coming to Jerusalem, and Herod in Jerusalem saying, oh my goodness, is this another group that's coming to to fight and to war with us? 
And so Herod, wanting to keep everything close to himself, close to the vest, if you will, brings them in and says, you know, why, why are you here? Not wanting to, to announce to all of the people, right? And so they talk about the star that has come, and of course Herod knows about the Messiah, he knows the scriptures, the scribes and the wise men know, and they, uh, they tell him about Bethlehem, and the wise men go to Bethlehem, and they are there to worship the Lord. That is the purpose for why they go. And they know, as you and I should know, that the only one who should be worshipped is God. We don't worship the creation, we don't worship things, we don't worship people, we worship God. And they respond in like kind. They know, in other words, that Jesus is God. And so the sign for them, the warning for them, is the star and the baby himself, right? Jesus. And they respond to him by saying he is God, and they fall down and worship him. To me, anytime we have any kind of a picture of the wise men, uh, so often we see them standing erect. You know, they should be on their faces, Right, worshiping God, because that's what we read that they do. They, they bow down before him. They worship him. And the star and the child, in many ways, are both signs. What is a sign? A sign is evidence. A sign is not a symbol. A symbol is a totally different thing. A sign is evidence, right? Fire is, ev- excuse me, smoke is evidence that there's a fire, right? It's not a symbol of fire. It's evidence. If you see it, you say, I have good evidence that there's a fire, right? The sign, the star, is the same way for the wise men. It is evidence that the Messiah has come. And the baby, though he has done so much already, this is God become man so that man might become one with God. This is divinity putting on humanity. This is God putting on flesh, changing all of creation in that moment of his incarnation. There's still so much for him to do in the crucifixion and the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? And yet, although those things have not been done, they see the promise, they see the sign, the evidence that God is fulfilling these promises. So the baby in the stable is evidence. He is evidence of these great works of God, and they respond in the right way in worship. Jeremiah, too, was prepared. Jeremiah was prepared because he knew that God was holy. This is a big deal. If you know God is holy, and then you look around and you realize that nobody else is, you realize there's a problem. And the problem for Jeremiah results in his mourning. And Jeremiah is known as the mourning prophet. This is what prophets do. Prophets say, God is holy, he's here, and we're not. We're over here. There is a distance. God is holy, we're not. We need to do something about that. We've been separated from God. And this is a big problem. And so his response was mourning. He sees the country he's in like the Magi. He sees where he's dwelling. And he says, I don't want to dwell here. I don't want to dwell in sin. I don't want to dwell in death. I don't want to be in the country that I'm in. I want to be in the country of God. That's the response of the Magi. They see that evidence and they say, we don't want to live the way we've been living. We want to go to where God is. And so Jeremiah is saying to the people, he's saying, be wise. See where God is and let's go there. Let's go and be one with God. Let's have sorrow and mourning in order to get there. Surprisingly enough, not a popular message. 
Talk to people through this week about how important it is to mourn and be in sorrow and see how popular you'll become in your friends and family circles. We'll do anything not to mourn. We distract ourselves with drugs and alcohol, with binge-watching television or video games. We do all kinds of stuff. We shop. The list goes on, right? Of things that we do so that we don't live in the sorrow and mourning, recognizing the country that we're in. The problem is that that mourning and sorrow is the doorway. It's the doorway into the joy of God. We have to go through that door. You don't go through the door of the emergency room or the doctor's office thinking, I'm well. I can take care of myself. To go through that door, we've got to say, I'm sick. I don't want to be this way. And I can't do it by myself. I need help. I don't want to be this way. I need help. We have to recognize, I need to go and say, I'm sick and I need help to become well. Mourning and sorrow before the Lord is the door of that doctor's office. We're saying, I don't want to be in sin anymore. I don't want to be separate from God anymore. I can't do it by myself. I'm weeping over my sins. Let me receive God's joy. And the Lord promises to bestow that joy. Jeremiah tells us so. He says, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy. In other words, that's how we get there. We get there through weeping and crying for mercy. Then when we get there, he says, I will turn, I will transform your mourning into joy. We've got to have that mourning in order to get the joy. He will transform it, and he will comfort us and give us gladness for sorrow. See, the only way we get comforted is if we admit our need for comfort. We have to say, I need comfort. Okay, I'll give it to you. And so Jeremiah is telling the people of God, be prepared. Come and mourn and he will turn our sorrow into gladness. This is exactly what St. Paul is doing. This is exactly what St. Paul is saying in this letter to the Ephesians. He's saying, God's plan was not for us to be in sin. His plan that he calls predestination, in other words, he destined us before the world was made for what does he say? Holy and blameless lives. That's his plan. God's plan is for us to be holy and blameless. Before the setting of the world, before the foundation of the, of the world is set, God's plan is that we be holy and blameless. Are we? No! What do we say about that? That God's failed? Of course not! He's the one who's going to make us holy and blameless. When we bring our mourning and sorrow to Him, He's the one that's transforming us right now, and that will transform us. But the point is that we have been made in order for this plan of holy and blameless lives. That is what we've been destined for. Now, some people get confused about this and say, oh, because God destined us for holiness, there must be some who are just always holy and some who just don't make it. Did, does the scripture say that Jesus died for a few? It says he died for the whole? The whole world. Because his plan from the beginning was for all to be saved. Are there just a few that need his baptism? Does he come to some and say, oh, well, you're okay. You, you don't need it. 
No, everybody needs it, right? The scary part, the scary part is that some of us say, no thanks, I'm not that bad. Things are going pretty well. I don't need your help. And he doesn't make us automatons. He doesn't force us into agreeing with him or to receiving his joy and his goodness. We have to choose it on our own accord, which again is terrifying. Because on the other side of that is that we can choose not to receive it. But St. Paul is reminding us that the plan for us always from the beginning was to dwell with us in the garden. His plan was always to be one with us, to be dwelling with us, to be walking with us, to be, to be inhabiting with us in that garden of paradise. God's plan for us has always been paradise. And, and more than that, more than that, he says, this is, this is amazing to me, he says that when he forgives our sins, by his grace, he gives us so much grace that we get wisdom and insight that allows us to know the mystery of his will. We know the mind of God when we come into his grace. We actually go into and dwell in the mystery of his will, into his mind. That's an incredible intimacy. An amazing thing to know that anytime, anywhere, we can dip into that reservoir of grace that the Lord is always offering to us and that we can receive his will. And that we can participate in his salvation. If we recognize that the country in which we dwell is not holy and blameless. But then we've got to pack our bags and be ready to go. People make a really big deal out of believing in God. You'll see people make a big deal about this in the media. Certain percentages of people believe or don't believe in God. Who cares? Satan believes in God. What's that gotten him? He goes to heaven and talks with God about Job. He talks with God face to face. Most people say, well, if I did that, I'd be holy and blameless. Didn't work for Satan. The demons proclaim Christ more fully than any of the apostles do in the Gospels. They say, what have we to do with you, son of David? They know he's God. What does that do for them? Even with that knowledge, they want to go into pigs. Herod and the chief priests and the scribes knew everything, if not more, than the Magi. Belief in God for them, that wasn't even a point. Of course they believed in God. Believe in the Messiah? You better believe it. They knew exactly where he was going to go. They knew Bethlehem. They had been there for a Sunday picnic. They knew exactly where he was going to appear. They knew exactly what the star was. They knew exactly where to go and worship him. And when Herod is able to get what little information he wanted for them to pinpoint exactly when the child was going to be born, is his response to worship God? He wants to cut off his head. 
Belief in God, forget about it. He knew the Messiah. He knew the plan of salvation. He knew what God was coming to do. And his response was violence to the kingdom of God. Our response has to be obedience and participation in his will. It has to be mourning and sorrow. It has to be recognizing the distance that we lie from God and falling upon our faces, begging for mercy from him. And when we do, he gives us more than grace. He gives us more than love. He gives us more than joy. He invites us into the mystery of his mind. May we dwell in God's mind this day and forevermore.